Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. So in John chapter 21, we find ourselves in the last chapter of this gospel, the last episode that John records for us from the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we get a third appearance of the Lord Jesus to a group of disciples here in chapter 21. So this, uh, I will read for you the first 14 verses and we'll talk about that. And then we'll come to the the last chunk, uh, the second half of the chapter after that. So let me read for you, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, Nope. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So essentially the activity of these verses obviously including another one of these miraculous uh, signs of Jesus. The activity of these verses is simply that Jesus feeds his disciples. Jesus feeds his disciples. And so he does it in a pretty remarkable way, of course. I find it interesting. The disciples, have they've all gone back home now. Remember, the activity up to this point, in the last few chapters, have been in Jerusalem. Now they have gone back to Galilee. It tells us there that this happened on the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. So they've gone back from Jerusalem to their homes. And apparently they're at least 
beginning to go back to work, right? Going back to fishing. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And the other said, all right, we'll come with you. Right? Sometimes that, some people take that to, to mean that the disciples have sort of abandoned ship and that they've decided following Jesus isn't worth it. We're just going to go back to being fishermen. I think it's probably a little too hard on these guys. Um, I don't think that they, there's necessarily unbelief or rejection uh, here. And in fact, when they learn that the person on the shore is Jesus, they're eager to be with him. Peter, of course, all you know, as, as much as anybody, jumping out of the boat into the water. So I don't, I don't think that we need to see this as like, oh no, they've gone fishing, they've completely rejected their mission, and you know, they don't believe in Jesus anymore. But it is a little bit hard to, to see this group of guys hanging out, going fishing, to no avail, right? They went out, fished all night, and didn't catch anything. It's a little bit hard to see this group of guys and not think, this doesn't really seem like the disciples in the book of Acts, right? There's a difference once we get to Acts and the Holy Spirit comes to them in Acts 2 and then they're boldly proclaiming Christ and they're just on mission all the time, right? It's, it, it doesn't seem like the same bunch of guys, which I think kind of lends credibility to the fact or to what I suggested as Jesus' words to them about receiving the Holy Spirit being a, a promise of the Spirit that would soon come and not an actual infilling with the Holy Spirit because these guys don't seem to be living out a spirit-empowered mission at this moment. They're back home, they're going out on a boat, uh, and they seem a little bit confused uh, by this whole encounter with Jesus. And so there's a, there's a difference here. So Jesus has a redemptive and missional, if you'll allow that word, purpose in his encounter with the disciples. He first gathers and feeds them, and then in the verses to come, he'll have another specific message that he gives to Peter. And we'll talk about that when we come to those verses. And so, Jesus gathers, uh, or Jesus shows up on the shore. They went out and they caught nothing. That's frustrating, isn't it? Fishing was a nighttime activity uh, in this place and time. And so they would go out on a boat all night long. And it says, as day was breaking in verse 4. So they've been at this all night long and they've caught nothing so this is not a fruitful productive night of fishing this is frustrating right so some stranger shows up on the shore the next as, as the day is breaking and he calls to them children do you have any fish children is a kind of an interesting term uh, the word behind children there uh, can mean just like guys or lads or something like that so it's, it's a friendly term so, hey guys, do you have any fish? And the way that the question is worded implies a negative answer. Like, you haven't caught anything, have you? He knows, right? You guys have not had a productive night of fishing. And so they said simply, no. <laughs> we have not caught any fish. And so he's going to give them some fishing instructions, right? Cast your net on the other side of the boat, and then I think you'll find some. Which on its face, if you've got a stranger calling from the shore to a group of fishermen who have been at it all night, and he goes, hey, try the other side of the boat. If I'm a fisherman in that situation, I might be inclined to go, keep your opinions to yourself, right? Thanks a lot. Like, we haven't tried both sides of the boat, right? Um, nevertheless, even without recognizing yet that this is Jesus, they try it. Maybe just because they're so desperate, maybe they're so tired, I don't know. Then he says, put it on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. All right, fine. So they throw the net on the other side of the boat. 
And then they couldn't even haul the net in because there were so many fish in it. And John even gives us the detail that there were 153 fish that they had drugged to the shore from this net. So clearly, Jesus is demonstrating here his authority over nature, right? He, at the very least, has awareness, has a supernatural knowledge that all the fish are right over there, right? So he can see beyond just looking into the water and figuring out where the fish are. He knows, oh, that school of fish is on the right side of the boat. At least it's supernatural knowledge. It might be more than that. It might be there were no fish there until Jesus summoned them to show up in their net. But one way or another, Jesus is demonstrating here, once again, as John has showed us throughout this gospel, he is the son of God. He is unique in his uh, identity and his power over the world over nature and so he calls them to cast the net and they find all of these fish and immediately John that the beloved disciple the disciple whom Jesus loved John recognizes this must be Jesus right because no ordinary dude on the shore is going to tell me to cast my net on the other side and suddenly we're we can't even haul in the net and so he says it is the Lord. He said that to Peter. So John is the first to recognize it, which is kind of in keeping with what we've seen about John. Even at the, the scene of the empty tomb on Easter morning, John, it says, was the first one who believed. He saw and he believed. The others went home and were not sure exactly what had happened. So John is the first one to recognize this is the Lord. And also in keeping with what we've seen of their characters, Peter is the first one to act. Peter throws himself into the sea. Now, they're not far off from shore, he tells us, so the water is not deep here, but he jumps out of the boat, and he's running to the shore to get to Jesus, and so he is eagerly uh, desirous of being in the presence of the Lord. An interesting note here, uh, verse 8 there, tells us uh, that the, the perspective of the story stays with the disciples on the boat. Right? So it says, Peter threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, which is just another mark of eyewitness authenticity because any normal person telling this story from a sort of omniscient perspective would stick with Peter because Peter was the action. Right, He jumped out of the boat and he's going to see Jesus. But the perspective of the narration stays with the disciples who are back on the boat trying to deal with getting these fish to the shore, which just, again, speaks to the fact that John was there. John is one of these disciples on the boat dragging the fish. And so that's the part of the story that he tells there. Just a good little observation to see. So they finally get to the land and they find that Jesus already has prepared a fire, a charcoal fire, it tells us. And there's already a, a few fish laid out on top of this fire cooking. And so Jesus tells them, go ahead and bring in the rest of the fish that you've got and come and let's eat breakfast. And so Jesus provides breakfast for his disciples. John tells us there's 153 of them. It's a very specific number. I don't think we should get too crazy about trying to find some symbolic significance to what 153 means. There have been those who have taken that route and tried to come up with all kinds of various things. I think it just means there's a whole bunch of fish. And they knew how many fish there were because they probably went man, how many fish are in that net? And counted them out. 
Maybe they were dividing them up to sell. I don't know. But they knew how many they were because it was an impressive amount of fish that they had just drug in. And so John, again, just includes this, this eyewitness detail. There were 153 fish. So Jesus says, come and have breakfast. This is interesting in verse 12. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. You think if they knew that it was the Lord, they wouldn't need to ask. They wouldn't want to ask. They would have no interest in asking. It'd be a non-issue. But it doesn't say they didn't ask. It says they dared not ask. So there's this sense of perplexity, maybe. Maybe the, the disciples are still trying to wrap their minds around, this is really him. right? This is really Jesus risen from the dead. And so they know it's him, but they're like still just grappling. Is this really, is this really him? So it's like they almost want to go, is it, is it really you? Like, are you really back from the dead? Like, is that, like, that's kind of the sense I think that, that we see from, from the hearts of, of the disciples, but they don't, they don't actually ask him because they know, yeah, it really is him. They're just stunned. They're just amazed and, and perplexed that he's there in their midst again now for the third time and so Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him and so with the fish and this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead now obviously the groups of disciples are in view there because he had appeared to Mary Magdalene before that so Jesus feeds his disciples. I want to make a little observation, and then we're going to read the next uh, half of this chapter. The observation I want to make here is, this is not the first time that Jesus has provided, in a miraculous way, bread and fish for his people. If you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you might recall back in John chapter 6, that there was a multitude of thousands of people that were listening to Jesus' teaching, and it was about lunchtime, and they were hungry. And so Jesus rounded up a few loaves and a few little fish from a boy there in the crowd, and he miraculously multiplied them so that the entire crowd of thousands was fed and filled with bread and fish. So we're going to come back around to that, but I want that story to be in your mind as we continue reading. So Jesus has fed his disciples. And interestingly, he's fed them bread and fish, and he's done so by miraculously multiplying what they have. So now go with me to verse 15, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. 
you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus has fed his disciples. And now Jesus is going to give a mission. A reinstatement to service of Peter. And the mission and the ministry that he gives to Peter is feed my sheep. Jesus feeds his disciples and then he sends his disciples to feed others. Feed my sheep few things are well worth noting here in this passage. The first and most obvious thing that probably stands out is that Jesus asks Peter three times to affirm his love for him, which by itself, without any context, is repetitive and redundant. Why are you asking him three times? But if you remember that just a few nights before, Peter had three times denied that Jesus was his master, or that he even knew who he was, as different people approached him on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial and leading up to his crucifixion, as they said, hey, you're one of his followers, aren't you? Three times, he said, nope, you got the wrong guy. That's not me. I don't know him. So in response to the three denials of the Lord Jesus from Peter, Jesus now invites Peter to three times reaffirm his love for Jesus. And there is in this story, in, in that shape of things, an incredible picture of mercy. An incredible picture of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. This guy was supposed to be the leader of the disciples, right? He's the the chief among them. He's the guy who says, I'm going fishing, and they all go, yeah, I'm coming with you. Right? This is Peter. He's, he's the number one guy, so to speak, and he has failed utterly at his role. And when the, the pressure was on, he had buckled underneath it and denied Jesus. And yet here Jesus is not chastising him or correcting him, but inviting him to return, inviting him to reaffirm his love and commitment for the Lord, and then to reinstate him to his ministry. 
Because after each of these affirmations, yes, I love you. Yes, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. He gives him a mission. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. And again, feed my lambs. So Jesus mercifully restores Peter to ministry and to service even after this utter failure. Don't ever forget the patience and the mercy of Jesus. He is compassionate. He knows our weaknesses. He sees when we fail, it's true. But he doesn't write us off. He doesn't rewrite the story with us not included in it. He invites us back into it. If you find yourself in a place like that, where you feel sort of discarded, or you feel like, I've messed up so bad, Jesus wouldn't want me on his team anymore. See Jesus reinstating Peter in kindness. And take heart, knowing that Jesus has the same compassion and patience for you. Jesus wants you on his team. Jesus still has work for you to do in bearing witness to himself and caring for others and feeding his sheep. There is still work for you to do. And he welcomes you back in. So take heart from the compassion and the patience and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus in this way. Feed my sheep. Again, you go, who are my sheep? Who are the sheep that Jesus is talking about? Because we haven't seen sheep in play in this chapter. But if you think in the context of John's Gospel, you'll recall that back in John chapter 10, he had spoken of his people, the ones who believe in him and would follow him and hear his voice and repent and come to him are his sheep. He used the analogy of himself being the sheep uh, door, the door by which the sheep would come into the fold. And he says, the sheep hear my voice and they know me and I call to them and they will follow. And then he had said that uh, he, he cast his mission on the world, his redemptive mission in terms of gathering the sheep. There will be one flock, one shepherd, there are other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So Jesus has established already, and John has established for us, including that narrative and that speech, that Jesus sees his people, the ones who will trust him and follow him in faith and repentance, as his sheep, his flock, the, the ones that he is to care for and to protect and to guide, right? So Jesus is the chief shepherd of the flock, the people of God, the, the sheep of God's fold. But he's giving Peter here, and I would say by extension, not just any, any pastor or, or shepherd, but in a, to some degree, all Christians, a, a ministry of care for one another. So he gives to Peter this charge to shepherd, to feed, and to tend the lambs and the sheep that belong to his fold, which is an incredible entrusting 
of something precious. These sheep, Jesus gave his life for them. Jesus became incarnate, God in flesh, and died and rose to gather these sheep. These are his. And now, in a sense, he's entrusting these sheep to his disciples and saying, feed them, take care of them, shepherd them for me. We find Peter is a faithful example of a shepherd as we read his letters that we have in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, where he speaks of the responsibility of a, a shepherd, an elder within the life of a church to, to care for patiently and, and faithfully feeding and protecting and caring for the sheep that are in his flock, so to speak, that, that local congregation. So Jesus gives Peter this charge, this ministry to feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And so I find again that John is, it seems to me, is on purpose stacking these this story and this conversation, both to mimic the pattern that we've seen throughout his gospel, where there's some miraculous sign that happens. Jesus does something public and powerful, and then there is an explanation for it. And sometimes that came in the form of Jesus actually saying to the crowd what he had just done. Sometimes it comes uh, in a conversation between Jesus and his closer disciples. Sometimes it comes as John's own sort of commentary to us about what was going on there. But the pattern in the first half of the gospel is there's a sign and then there's an explanation about what that sign meant and how it pointed to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. And I think he's done the same thing here in chapter 21 where he gives us this miracle, this sign of Jesus miraculously providing breakfast for his disciples. And then I think the explanation for that miracle happens in this conversation with Peter where Jesus reinstates him to ministry and then he says, go feed my sheep. So I think the organizing principle in this chapter is feeding. He feeds his disciples and then he commissions his disciples to go feed others. Get fed and then feed someone. That is the pattern that I think Jesus is calling his disciples to. And not merely the apostles, the twelve who would go on to lead the Christian movement throughout the book of Acts and early Christian history, but to all of his followers, to all of us who have believed on account of their word, I believe the mission comes down to us as well. I think every local church that is faithful to Christ and his kingdom and his mission is responsible to carry this work on. Get fed by Jesus and feed someone else. I think that is the work of a Christian. I think that is the work of the church. Get fed and go feed. I think that is what, and I think it's intentional that John leaves us with that message. He closes his gospel essentially with this charge. Receive food from the Lord and then go and feed someone else. What does that mean? What does that look like? A few thoughts. Jesus feeds his disciples. So how do we get fed by Jesus? There's some things that are just going to be individual 
commitments and decisions and disciplines that we have to make and put into place in our own lives. Things like turning my commute to and from work into something redemptive and purposeful. So instead of flipping on the radio and listening to some political talk show or something, maybe use that time to pray out loud. The car has become my favorite place to pray. I just speak out loud to God while I'm driving. It's a great way to make intentional, redemptive use of a time that you must spend. You're going to be in the car. You're going to get from point A to point B. Use that time, right? Redeem it or listen to scripture. You've got, probably got a smartphone. You can download a Bible app and there's audio options on most of those things. Hit play and listen to God's word while you drive, right? There, there's a way to, there are ways to redeem that kind of time. Even just the, the basic practices of getting into God's word, spending time in prayer, looking for opportunities to, uh, to, to be fed by God's word, by God's truth, reminding yourself of the gospel, reading Reading books, even outside the Bible, Christian books and teachings that will help you in certain areas to, to ground your life on the gospel. There are so many ways to get fed in terms of your own personal <laughs> life and your own faith with Jesus. Some of these ways are very community-driven things. So one of the things that the church exists for is to provide opportunities for us, not just individually me and Jesus, but with one another to encourage each other, to feed each other, to help each other. That's why we have men's and women's Bible study groups that are starting this week. And that's why we have, honestly, a worship gathering like this on a Sunday morning. We come together, we, we worship God, we hear his word, we sing songs that remind us of the gospel. We're feeding on Jesus. We're letting the bread of life that's what he said of himself in John chapter 6. He fed them bread and fish, and then he said, I am the true bread from heaven. Whoever feeds on me will never die, right? He'll live forever. So we need to feed on Jesus. We need to find ways to get God's word into our lives and hearts. Redeem common time, time that is often wasted and spent frivolously. How can we intentionally repurpose that time to feed on Christ. Feed on Jesus and then go feed someone else. And if you do, if you haven't done any feeding, if you don't have any food, you don't really have anything to offer anybody else, right? I mean, that's kind of the basic principle. So the feeding happens first. We go to Christ. We go to his word. We are fed by him. And then we take what he's given us and we share it with someone else. That's another great purpose of the church. We feed each other. We encourage each other. When things are hard, when things are, are tough, and someone is struggling, we encourage one another. Hang in there. Remember the gospel. Remember what's true. When someone is struggling with sin, we can call them to holiness and to purity and remind each other it's worth it. The fight against sin is worth it. To honor God and to uh, and and to, to see your life as a uh, as a tool in His hand, it's, it's worth it to fight against sin. We we call each other to to repent and to live holy lives. When we're burdened and just uh, sad or, or, or grieving, that the church comes around and, and and supports and encourages. And what do we do? We feed each other. 
Like in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, where he speaks of the resurrection that's to come, because Christ has been raised, all Christians will be raised. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we don't just encourage each other like, it's okay, it's going to get better, right? Every cloud has a silver lining. Not just random little proverbs or whatever. We encourage each other with the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. So, feed each other. And then find somebody else to feed. God puts people in our lives all the time. God positions us in ways to find opportunities to speak and to share and to encourage and strengthen somebody else with the food that we've received from the Lord. So I think that's the sense that, that we leave John's gospel with is this twofold challenge. Feed on Jesus and then feed somebody else. And in particular view here is the, is the church, the, the, she, the sheep of Jesus' fold. Care for these sheep. Feed one another. This last scene is interesting. As John apparently has been following, at some point the scene let, went from them all sitting around the fire eating breakfast to now Jesus and Peter walking probably along the beach. And John is close at hand. So after the charge, after the mission, right, go and feed my sheep, he gives him a bit of a warning about what's going to come in his life, doesn't he? He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. The stretching out of hands was common imagery for crucifixion. And John tells us, in verse 19, he was talking about how Peter was going to die. He tells us this was what kind of death by which Peter was to glorify God. So Jesus gives Peter a little bit of a glimpse of how this is going to end, which is kind of a bold move. Because you think if you know it's going to end that way, okay, so if I faithfully teach and shepherd God's people and you know, and live this life of ministry that he's called me to, it's going to end in me being crucified, just like Jesus was, I might go, uh, no thanks, I'm going to go this way. All right, I'm going to do something else that ain't going to end in that. But, but Peter spends three decades faithfully preaching the gospel and shepherding a local church. And the Bible does not include this, but early Christian writings tell us that that is indeed what happens, that Peter dies as a martyr for his faith, probably under the Roman emperor Nero, who persecuted Christians relentlessly. So Jesus warns him here, this is going to end in your humiliation and death. But he frames it, look at what John says, in terms of glorifying God. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. You know, you could glorify God in your death. It is possible to die well. It is possible to die in such a way that Jesus Christ is seen as the most important treasure in a person's life. And that he is glorified by a Christian's faithful, patient witness to Christ, even up to and including his death. We don't like to talk about that much. We don't want to think about that. Death is something we try to keep out of our minds as much as possible. 
Jesus here gives Peter a glimpse of where this is all headed. And there's a challenge in that, I think. This is the kind of death you're going to glorify me by. And so Peter has in his mind, I know where this is headed. I'm going to stay faithful. It's a call, it's a challenge to stay faithful to the end. Peter's obviously curious about John. John's there, overhearing this. He goes, what about him? Is he going to die too? Right? Is he going to have the same thing? And Jesus gives a, a gentle rebuke to Peter here. He says, it doesn't matter for you what my plan is for him. Right? It's not going to help you to know, oh yeah, John's going to die too in the same way. Okay, great. Well, at least we're together. Like, you don't need that. If, if it's my desire that he stays, as in he's alive on the earth until I return, then that makes no difference to you. You follow me. Don't put your eye on what other people are doing. Don't wonder if the guy down the street is experiencing the same success or failure in life or family or ministry or whatever. Well, I'm laboring faithfully and it's going badly. How come that guy is having all the success? The comparison trap is a disaster. It's a nightmare. We can all fall down that uh, pit. He says, don't worry about what I've got for John. It's different. And it is different. The early Christian history shows us that John lived a long life and died an old man in exile on the Isle of Patmos. That's where he writes the, the book of Revelation that closes the Bible. So he's an old man when he dies. Peter didn't make it quite that long and died in a very different way. So John tells us there there's a rumor apparently that spread based on this. If, if, if it's my plan that he stays until I come back, what's that to you? So people are going, oh, John's going to live forever. Right? And that's, that's not what he was saying. The point is, you follow me. You focus on what I have for you and trust me to do what I know is right. That song that we sang earlier, I love this hymn, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. There's such a faith-filled statement in that, just to say, whatever happens, even if it's hard, even if it's brutal, even if it leads to my suffering, even if it leads to my death, it's right. If God ordained it, it's good. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't goof up or let things slip through the cracks. Oh, whoops, I forgot about Carlson over there. That's a shame how, how, how that turned out, right? That's not what Jesus does. Whatever God ordains is right. And so we trust him. We take what he sends. And we know that he's with us in the midst of it. There's so much comfort in that knowledge. And so Jesus calls his followers to trust him for what's going to come. And just follow me. Feed on Jesus. Feed somebody else. Leave the results to him. Don't worry about how it's all going to turn out or how it's going to go. And that is where this gospel ends. John finishes in verse 25. There are so many, there are other things that Jesus did. If all of them were to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. A little bit of hyperbole there. But in fact, books have continued being written down through the centuries about what Jesus has done and is doing in and through his church and around the world through the spreading of the gospel and through dead sinners coming to life through faith in Christ. 
and receiving hope and peace and joy and being transformed. That's where we want to live. That's where as a church we want to camp out. We want our energies and our focus and our plans and our schedules and our resources and our efforts to be around. How can we take the word of God and feed people with it? Feed people with the word and trust the results to him. That invitation that Jesus gave to Peter is the same one he gives to us. Do you love me? Then take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my people. Do you love me? Tend my flock. So let's go to Jesus and receive from his word and then let's find opportunities empowered by the spirit of God that lives inside us to take his word and his truth and what we have fed on ourselves and give it away to somebody.